if you ever start feeling like looking for something bigger than yourself or a spiritual life or something just greater than you currently understand, it's really easy and really common to encounter these what are, in my opinion, bad actors. And these are the people that sell something devoid of our humanity, that treat good emotions and bad emotions as something separate, and that treat depression, anxiety, fear, trauma, these thoughts that don't feel good necessarily as something that you should grow past and that isn't a part of you. And I personally believe in a much more wholesome approach where you invite all of you to the table, your fears, your trauma, your insecurity, your doubts, as well as your desires, your joys, your ambitions, your loves. I think it's all part of us. I think it's part of the human experience. And yes, some feel better than others, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for these things. And so this is a long conversation. I'm just going to jump right in. My guest today is Roxanne McDonald. She runs two Instagram accounts that I've been following long before we ever got in touch, which is Writer's Resource and Spiritual AF. And they both touch on humanity and a really holistic approach that includes all of you, your cynicism, your sarcasm, your everything. Your whole being gets invited to the table and also shares values that I really care about and that I think are serious, but in a way that doesn't take itself too serious. And I think that is at least my preferred delivery mechanism. So without further ado, here is my very long but very wonderful conversation with a new friend, Roxanne McDonald. Did I bring headphones? No, it's okay. Uh, Talk normally into the mic. I don't think I ever talk normally. So raise your voice. Hi, hi, hi. Like you're really excited? Oh my God. (laughs) Okay. And then kind of like you're very serious. I have feelings. (laughs) Okay. Hello, hello. All right. I think we're good. Okay, let me take off my retainer. Taking out the retainer. It's very embarrassing for her. The spit actually collects in her (laughs) retainer. She told me that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Roxanne, hey. Hi. Thanks for hosting me. Yeah. Sounds like you've listened to at least one episode. A few. And so you know what I'm going to say next. I know, and I I don't want to answer it. (laughs) Roxanne, who are you? (laughs) I think I decided, I was thinking about this all day, and I was like, I'm just going to say a writer. I'm a writer. You're a writer. Yeah. But then there's all this other stuff I do. Yeah, throw in the other stuff. Brag a little bit. Maybe. Well, and I think that I think that the the problem for me about it is that I've been asked that question, and then I always like I start to feel schmarmy. Like I start to feel like, oh, I've got all these labels about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm a writer, and I'm a influencer. <laughs> I'm a social media influencer. <laughs> I've got a big social media platform about personal development and spirituality and kindness. And then for many years, I was a a counselor for at-risk youth and their families, mostly focused on substance abuse recovery, but then also with gang diversion. And then for a while, I really loved working with white supremacist youth and diverting them from that lifestyle. Wow. Okay. So just out of curiosity, were they already looking for a way out or were they active no they were mostly active wow and teachers just noticed and kind of signed them up or no i was i was working in a program that focused on latino gang diversion and substance abuse recovery and it was in a neighborhood where it was 
mostly Latinos. And then we had a treatment program that was six months inpatient or not inpatient, but it was residential. And so then I got one client referred to me who was a white supremacist youth who had been in juvenile halls and all those diversion programs. And then, so they sent that kid to live at the treatment program. And then I worked well with him. I come from a family that had white supremacist, white supremacist in it. And I grew up drinking with white supremacists. And so, and I had like done a lot of my own work about that. And so I could meet them. And then we started this thing where most people wouldn't take a white supremacist youth. Really? Uh, yeah, there was no yeah. programs. And I, I still haven't found one. And I'm sure there are. I've actually met somebody who did some amazing work, but that program had ended a long time ago. And I thought that my life, be, when that kind of, it was like a couple years that I was doing that. And we'd get, I'd only take two kids at a time. And it was like a whole thing. But we... um you know, we could defer people from going into what they would do with kids that are in that culture. They would just fast track them to youth authority, which is now defunct because it was so horrible. But youth authority was worse than any prison you could ever think of. I would always just tell kids to try to get tried as an adult if you were on the track to youth authority. Wow. So what they would do with the, with white supremacist youth is that they would just fast track them to youth authority and then they would just go directly into the prison system. And so I just had a heart for that and of course you know i i I felt like the best way that i could deal with racism as a person who lives my life as a white person was to address racism in white people and especially if you understand the ideology and have common language i mean that's Mm -hmm. something that you see in recovery all the time right is that if you have been a meth head you know you you know it and you know how to connect with them yeah, I was never a white supremacist. Yeah, yeah, I got that. I, I, I just like I, I grew, I'd grown up with people, and I'd known that, you know, you could see somebody, and you know, you could see a gang member, a white supremacist, a drug addict, and you could just say, "That's that. That's a, that's that. That's not a whole person." But growing up with people, where you're like, "I've seen you cry. I know you got beat up by your dad. I know you lost somebody. I know, I know all this stuff about you, and this, this part is one part." And so I think that was the benefit for me is that I'd grown up and I knew the heart of so many people that were part of that. And then I could found a way to engage them in that. Well, that's, is this written anywhere? Like when I was doing research for you, I didn't, I didn't find any of this. No, no. When we got off on that topic, topic, I was like, "Uh Oh, (laughs) this isn't something that I put out there a ton, but no, that's not written anywhere. I, I mean, the, my work with young people, I was, I worked with substance abuse in the substance abuse fil- field for 14 years and ran clean and sober high schools. And so in that was when the, I was working with, you know, gangs and white supremacist youth and trauma and all that. Wow. So that's out there that I did that. And so how did you get here to where you are now? I'll just tell people because I don't think we covered it. You're writing coach. Mm-hmm. You're actively writing a full book, right? Yeah. And you're also this one woman meme machine. <laughs> that is uh, the Instagram account, spiritual AF underscore AF. And how'd you get here? Because I only know you in this latest form of yeah. yours. What got you here into? I. So I was working in the schools for many years and I'd gone to that high school. So I got sober when I was 15 and I come from intense trauma and I was blessed with this 
I was blessed with bo- this both like I it's it's a hard way to say it but like I got all this na- intense trauma as a kid and then I was given ev- the second I raised my head up to like go I have some power here and I can make choices I was just like this absolute unfolding of everything a person could get from health and wellness. And I felt just so lucky that like I got, you know, like I, I grew up my, I grew up with a, you know, my mom was, my mom kind of ran a pedophilia ring and I was like intense sexual abuse as a kid. And then the, like when I was a freshman in high school, still drunk and still running the streets and all that, you know, people, this woman started offering free counseling in her home, like, which was like, it's not legal really, you know? And like, I got to show up there and then that led me to having questioning my actions and questioning my life. And then every step of the way, there would be this miraculous opportunity that I don't think most people get. So the second I got sober, they, I found a clean and sober high school that had just started and it was the first in the country. And so then I went to that high school and that became, you know, I left my whole family and that school saved me and it gave, it was free. And then each time, you know, I've been given all these teachers and um, mentors. And of course, like I can look at one way where I feel like I was just like absolutely given everything I could possibly be gifted with, as well as the fact that I took it and I sought it out. But when I went back to work in schools, I worked at the yes school and then and it was my heart it was like i i loved that place it was the closest thing to like a real family i could ever have and so i worked there for 14 years and no one thought i would ever leave because i was just so passionate about it and i felt like it was you know like the the work i was supposed to be doing in the world that i think when people are looking for a career i'm always like go f- see the place where you um the role offers you the ability to be your best self and for me it was like I just, I like, I would walk in the door and that role of being a counselor and running that school and like, you know, being all the things I was there, I had a piece about it. I had, I, I think I cultivated so many parts of myself I wouldn't have if I wasn't there. And I just had this deep love for it. And then over, like, you know, most people spend about two years on the front lines of substance abuse. Like, it's like a teacher, like the, the usually, you know, you make it two years and then you go do something else. And so 14 years was a long time. And then I can, can I stop you there? Yeah. Yeah. So it's something that I really learned in recovery, right? It's like the worst things that you've been through are now your qualifications to help others that have been yeah. through it. Yeah. And to, I'm trying to figure out a way to word this gracefully to be sexualized and then even you know physically have sexual violence against you is one of the most definitely one of the most egregious things that can happen to a child mm-hmm. when they're trying to form their map of what the world is mm-hmm. and was it when you started seeing the counselor that you realized it was wrong like or were you were you aware of how horrific that part of your life was mm-hmm. when when did you actually start i guess the healing mm-hmm healing process which you know the first start the first stop in that is to recognize what had happened and stop making excuses for your abusers and yeah yeah well then i'll backtrack into another miraculous thing so i you know i grew up in the circles in santa cruz and it was a really bad neighborhood but it was also a neighborhood that uh this woman ellen bass 
was doing writers groups. And in those writers groups, women, people, but mostly women were coming and starting to write about childhood sexual abuse. And then her and her person that she was running these groups with, Laura Davis, wrote The Courage to Heal. It was the first book that was like, you know, this, that childhood sexual abuse is rampant and it's real and people should be talking about it. And those groups were happening in Santa Cruz. And the people that my, that were my parents' friends, it was all these, you know, hippie lesbians were going to these writers groups. And so I, outside of my family, I was in this first just round of people talking about childhood sexual abuse. So by the time I was eight, I had people in my life that I just, you know, it's in the ethos. I could hear it. It was happening. People were coming and talking to us. Like they were saying, you know, those talks that now are normal. But but back then it was like, no, 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 this doesn't happen. And so when I was eight, I reported. And then it's like a long convoluted story that I'm putting all in my memoir. But I reported. So therefore it stopped for me. And then I just was living in a house where it was. You reported at eight. Yeah. Wow. And then I was talking about it. And so I think one of the reasons why I have gotten to enjoy so much health and freedom is because I didn't spend, you know, decades in silence. I didn't, I, I didn't spend that long in silence. I mean, it was like from five to eight and then I started talking about it. And of course there's like, there's tons of pain and tons of stuff I still am unpacking, but I, I don't, I, I had a place to talk about it. And I never thought that it was something that, uh, I, I mean, of course I didn't want to go advertise it, but it wasn't, some, it wasn't a big secret. And then that one of those women, the woman that gave the group for teens with chat, with childhood sexual abuse, I think she had come out of one of those Ellen Bass things, uh, groups. And then, um, and so I just was in, in a place where I think it was the first, the first kind of com- like neighborhood <laughs> that was talking about it like we were. So I knew it was wrong and I knew uh I you know I I still like sometimes I'm like oh yeah that was a real weird thing that that was normalized in my home but not so much not like a lot of other people who have to do it from like 6 to 16 or you know or 60 or 60 yeah right and yeah build their build their entire lives around this like shame and all that and I didn't I and how that what an amazing woman to <laughs> put this together Ellen Ellen yeah oh. Holy and then Alan, so then if I talk about my, my, how incredibly lucky I am. So then Alan is a writing teacher and a poet. And so she, you know, she started all these programs and went all over the country and the world talking about childhood sexual abuse, but she was a poet. And she just was like, this is what's in front of me. And I'm, I'm meeting it. And then she re- pulled back because she was like, I'm really a poet. And then she pulled back from doing work on se- childhood sexual trauma and still was offering writers groups. And so when I was teaching, when I was uh, at the Yes School, I had gone to all these writers groups and I'd been on Ellen's waiting list, but kind of nervous about it because I was like this woman, I used to go into the library or not the library, I used to go into um, Bookshop Santa Cruz and take that book down and read it. And it saved me and I would never steal that book, which was like, I was like such a thief, but I just was like, I had so much reverence for that book and for Ellen. And so I finally, after seven years of being on her waiting list, I got into her group and then I met her and she just, oof, 
she like recognized my talent right away and just like met me and has like then became my mentor. And then part of why I left the yes school and counseling was that I had, I'd been, I was going to writer's group and I started working on this memoir because I've been a writer since I can remember. And Ellen wrote me an email once that said, if I had your talent, I would strip away everything that stood in between me and writing. And I, printed that email out and I put it on on the front of my day planner. And every time I put something in my day planner, I had to pass by Ellen's words. And I know her, you know, and I knew that she didn't just tell people that all the time. So then in that time, I pasted it there. And then I went on our annual river rafting trip. And I got I had a near death experience, a very minor near death experience, but I was trapped under the boat in the rapids in a very dangerous spot. And I thought I was going to die. And I had the boat up against my face. And the only thing I thought about was that this horror that I hadn't finished my memoir. Wow. And when I got out and like all the whole school was watching because they were all behind us in the boats and I knew I needed to act right because they were, they'd all seen it. And I just kind of was like, I'm okay. And, you know, I had like, you know, I had some injuries, but I was okay. And then I got home and, and just fell apart and was like, I know my life is going to be different. And I knew I couldn't ignore what I needed to do. I knew I was going to lie because if I was talking to all these kids about going after their dreams and being full, fully themselves. So I quit my job. And then Ellen mentored me as a writing teacher and showed me the ropes and then let me assist her and, you know, teaching at Esalen Institute and teaching it all over the place. And so, yeah, it's hard for me to even talk about Ellen Bass without me just feeling like I, I would not be the human being I am without that woman and how many strange ways she has absolutely shaped my life. That's beautiful. <laughs> so you're at this point where you have a, a minor near death experience <laughs> <laughs> and you're still working for the school and you know that the school is not where you're going to be. What, what took you over the edge? When did you finally tell the administration that you needed to do something else? Uh, um. Well, I knew at the, I knew at the river rafting trip, it was done. Inside. Inside. That's and a the, big transition yeah. from inside to outside. Yeah. I, I told them like pretty quickly. I, wow. I, I mean, it is kind of like, you know, the end of the, of me at the, that school was, it was, I was being, how would I say this? It's kind of the way I just, I, I want to say it all really kindly. But, you know, things weren't working out, too. And I didn't feel seen. And I didn't feel like I felt like I'd gotten drained by the bureaucracy and the agency. And so there was this conflict that in the midst of it, I felt really betrayed. But looking back, I'm like, thank you. Like, if I had felt supported, <laughs> and I had felt like I was being seen and heard and my, you know, that I wasn't just being taken advantage of, then I would never have left even with a near death experience. So, so there was a point where, you know, there was conflict, but it was like, you know, I waited until the conflict had kind of died down. And then because I've been taught, like, you leave when things are working. And so I worked through my issues with it. And then I came pretty quickly and was like, you know, and like at the end of the school year, I'm done. And I, I thought that I was going to have to work in a coffee shop again, you know, and I, uh, I was willing to do it. I was willing to do whatever it took to just be present with my dream. 
Yeah. And that's, you know, that's not what happened. I had no idea I was going to become a writing teacher when I quit my job. I, I really did think I was going to either go waitress again or <laughs> go like dig ditches. I <laughs> was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then I was a part of this writer's group. And then Alan, Ellen stopped teaching that group. And then we all just tried to stick together. And then because I'd had so much experience counseling uh, and running groups that then they elected me to be the teacher. And then you were the glue that kept it together. Yeah. Yeah. And then they ended up just, you know, I did like a bowl, like a Donna, you know, generosity bowl. And then it turned into me asking, you know, asking people to start paying. And then I just, Ellen really supported me and really talked to me through like how to make a business. And so then I just, without any qualifications, like, and that's what I did at the, you know, when I was a counselor, like I went in there, I had a high school diploma, but it wasn't for me, it was like, it was like a, it was a yes school diploma. I was like, you went to alternative school. I didn't, I didn't know how to do geometry and I didn't have an undergrad degree. I didn't, I didn't have all of this stuff. I just showed up and I was on, I just did it. And then with being a writing teacher, I didn't have any published work besides some stuff in like a local college anthology. I had no reason that anyone should respect me as a writing teacher. And I learned to be a writing teacher, which I'm really glad because the skill of teaching writing is more like counseling than it is about being a good writer. And and I like that when I show up to be a writing teacher that I am actually not at this point in my life. Most of my clients and students aren't there because they've read my work. They're there because I've helped somebody else be their best writer self, their best artist. And that I think because I didn't come in with a chip on my shoulder as a writing teacher about, well, I have this qualification, so therefore, or I have, you know, you like the way I write. It's more just like I can show up and have this love for the craft. And I mean, I'm obsessed with it and I always have been. So when I'm talking to writers and I'm going like, oh, have you broken apart dialogue? It's like, because I have spent hours with books, like making marks and dissecting how they do what they do. And it's like from this like heartfelt obsession of mine and not you know don't do you know what i mean yeah and so that was really i mean i i think i just keep saying i'm lucky but i am i feel lucky that i got to build this career and and i built the career and i had all the writing stuff like being a writing teacher going and then as i've been chipping away at this memoir that is just a huge undertaking for me ellen suggested i go get a master's degree and then i went and got a master's degree after I already had the career that you would have once you had a master's of fine art and creative writing. Wow. And so then I just got my master's degree, which slowed down my writing career, teaching my teaching career, because <laughs> I was focusing on the master's degree. But it's just this, you know, like backwards way. I think I've gone about everything. Yeah. Well, some of my favorite people went the backwards way. But so... How dare you? How 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 can you find the authority to step into that that role with no mm-hmm. experience? I mean, w- have you always believed in yourself, or what's the? Mm-hmm. What <laughs> you're shaking your head? No, 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 no. What? When did you know that you could do this? Uh, when I did it. It just, you know, I'd done it for free. Like I did free editing for my friends and I, I would, I would just naturally like, just like with counseling, I would show up and 
you know, had already been the person that was like deeply interested in people's experience and deeply interested in them being them their whole selves. And then talking about like all the ways that they're blocked. And then when I became a counselor, it's like, I've already been doing this. And then I just threw myself into learning how to do it more succinctly. And so with being getting paid to be a writing coach and a writing teacher, I just did it because I'd already done it and I was doing it anyways. And then um, it's like every time I felt like, who the fuck do I think I am? And it was so scary. And I knew somebody was going to roll their eyes and be like, why does she even think she can get paid for this? And then I just did it because I needed to pay the rent and I wanted, you know, like I, because I really, really wanted to. And because somebody believed in me, maybe. And it just grew from there. Like when I became a coach, I was like hiding behind Ellen's skirts and hiding, going and um, teaching with people who already, like I had people who'd worked with me and then telling their friends. So then those people would come in and I didn't have to prove myself so much because I had people there who were just like, Roxanne's amazing. She's going to help you. And then, but putting myself out there as a coach to work one-on-one with people online, I would not have done it. But then I was teaching with Ellen at Uslan Institute and a woman asked me to do it. And I said, I I'm, I don't really do that. And she said, why? And she was just this wonderful, pushy kind of, you know, go-getter of a woman. And she lived in Berlin and she was like, I can't come back to these And so then she contacted me again and goes, I want to work with you. And so then I just was all, okay, well, just I'm going to try it out with you. And then she paid me what she could. Like, I was like, just pay me whatever. And then we did it. And then I was like, wow, I love this. I'm good at this. And then she referred her mom. And then like I had her and her mom. And then then it turned into where I started doing it so much. And then now then I went like it was kind of draining. And then I just kept like, honestly, the next thing I did, which I think I, I tell people about this because I'm like, when I'm supporting people to go after their dreams and getting paid what they're worth and asking for financial support, I was doing it so much and getting drained that I went, okay, well, how much is it if I was like really getting paid what I, what it would be really, really worth it for me and really help me. And then I made this, this price that I thought nobody would pay little me for. And then I was like, okay, that's, that's the price thinking that I was going to not get paid that and i just got way more people wow yeah i had a teacher who said his first job was painting a sign for a landscaping company or like a a, what do you call it nursery Mm -hmm. and he painted the sign and the guy said what do you want for the sign he said a hundred bucks and the guy paid him a hundred bucks he goes just so you know i would have paid double (laughs) and then from that price he would write down what he thought he was worth and then double it and that's how he's priced his design work ever since Mm -hmm. so yeah just to backtrack a little bit so this whole podcast started because i got fired and (laughs) i was at a company that i loved it was you know similar to the yes school for you i loved it it was kind of like a dream job i got to be of service to people i got to be creative um i could live on what they paid me and there was a lot of internal conflict as well that was a little draining but uh, I had talked about doing my own thing for four years at the, while I was working at that company. Mm-hmm. And I got a letter. You know, I wasn't even told I was fired. I got a letter that said, you know, we're no longer going to be needing you. And this is how you, this is where you go from here. You sign up for unemployment. And I instantly wow. went into panic mode. My heart starts beating. And then my heart slowed down. 
And I had recently been in like a end of the world situation, which I think desensitized me a little bit. But then I just said, if you go find a new job right now, you're going to be saying the same thing for four more years. And so I just went for it. And it's been a, a total mistake, you know, but it's been the best mistake ever. Like when people tell me they want to go for their dreams, I'm really like, wow, okay, well, that's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And do you really? <laughs> you know, because it's so much work. Mm-hmm. But it's such a, a rewarding experience. And I also think it's important for people listening right now to know that like your value isn't what you get paid mm-hmm. and your creative career might not be how you pay your rent. Like it just might not be. And it doesn't have to be. The podcast recently got a million downloads. <gasps> yeah. Oh my gosh. Congratulations. Thank you. But I've been reflecting on this a lot where the million downloads doesn't get me anywhere, actually. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make my art more valuable. It doesn't mean that I get more letters from people, right? Because I've been getting letters from people, and it's probably like one to 20 per episode, you know? Mm-hmm. Sometimes zero, but that's where the value comes from. You know, I think if, if you're a creative and you've touched one person, you've moved mountains, really. You know, I think if you're, or walking down the street and you're content and smiling and somebody is miserable and they kind of catch your smile for 30 seconds, I think that's a miracle. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I believe in like really small miracles. And the value, you know, the value in the work is the work. It's that I sit down and I, I find a way to do this and somehow get the podcast out every week or two weeks or whatever it takes. And I just wanted to say that for whoever is out there, because it's such a weird connection we have where that if you're not making a certain amount of money off it, mm-hmm. but this brings me into a good point, which is what, what has been your relationship to money as a creative? <laughs> like, how did you start getting, actually getting to that point to where you were charging the correct amount for your art? And how do you continue to sustain? Obviously, every artist has moments where they feel like, God, I just need to get a real paying job. You yeah. Because it is feast or famine for for most. And so mm-hmm. what is your creative relationship to money and supporting yourself and, and fighting for its life? Yeah. That's a really great question. <laughs> you know, I was a person because of where I come from. I, so I, I left my family when I was 15 and I grew up in, you know, in generational poverty and I had all this pride that I was not, I, I was not going to be a mooch and I wasn't like, I wouldn't take handouts and I would stay on people's couches, but then I would like clean their garage. And I just wanted this. I really wanted to be like, I did this on my own. And that was actually good that I just wanted, I wanted to own my success. And I didn't want to take from people. I didn't, I've seen, I had seen that in other people where they were just willing to use people for what they could give them. But then when I left my career, and became, you know, became a full time artist, I had to start receiving help Mm -hmm. and learning about how to just graciously allow people to be generous. And that was a huge learning curve. And so I have had like just incredible 
you know, I've had a lot of uncertainty and I know part of the game, not the game or the, the way that this goes down is that I, as a creative in this phase of my career, have had to be willing to get to the place of real, real uncertainty over and over. And that, I think for me, when you're saying like the benefits, um, there's a thing for me when I look back that I'm like, I believed in myself. And just that act of believing in myself, not about where I'm going to go, but just to go like, I think about my creativity and my creative life is this like my heart. And like, I am looking at it like a little five-year-old. And even if it's not going to make anything or do anything, I just want to hold its little face in my hands and be like, I'm going to be here for you. And that this longevity of, of, you know, five years of just going, I'm going to make my decisions based on this sweet creative self. Even when I am faced with, I don't know how rent's going to get paid. That for me is an absolute triumph. Not that to say that I don't actively want to not have so much uncertainty, <laughs> but just that like, I feel like that for me is the, is the big win. And, and so my relationship with money and being a creative is that I have taken I've gotten a lot of amazing people show up for me in ways that I never ever thought would happen I also have had to really work on my uh, my relationship with money and my thoughts about money and like really I've really invested myself in positive thinking and and um trust and faith and love and you know all of those things that like if you chase the carrot for me chasing the carrot is that like i will get up in the morning and be like okay i'm abundant everything's good i'm gonna be taken care of i know it i know it i feel it and then that i think that that's gonna come in dollars and cents but that it often comes in other ways but that the 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 personal development stuff that has come from this level of uncertainty has made me a better person and that carrot doesn't quite matter anymore yeah I don't, I, I don't know if that quite makes sense but that that like letting go of like well what if i have to give up the good living situation okay i i'm still okay uh, what if you know what if that catastrophe happens but what i found is that i have had amazing things happen over and over and over again that it's uh, you know like i recently and like a couple years of well, a year and a half ago I lived in a garage of the back of an art studio. So the, and, and I had cold water and mice and um, <laughs> no, I mean, I had some heat, but it was three years of that. It was lovely and cool. Like I got to decorate it in cool ways. And I was like really an artist in the sense of like, I walked through like a painting studio in the back of a garage to get to my house but i live in the bay area and i was like i need i i after three years i was like i can't do this anymore and i was ready to move to south america and do everything online because i was like well i can afford an apartment there and then another house came through where it's just like the big miracle and you know now we're sitting in it and it's like my dream home and it's all from generosity and people being loving to me yeah and for me working my ass off and showing up and you know all it's all the same it's all together in the same you know being able to ask and accept help is i think the number one thing that's kept me going because god i mean i'm listening to your story and yeah for me there's months where i had to decide which bill to pay yeah like who's more likely to report me to the creditors you know and it's been one hell of a journey and it's all been 
other people. Like it hasn't been me. It's not by the ingenuity of me or the mm-hmm. business sense of me. You know, it's by um, positioning myself to accept what people are offering to pay. So what is your spiritual ground? Because I, I follow your meme account, mm-hmm. which is spiritual underscore AF. And it's it's so me. It's such my flavor where, you know, I'm really uh, sarcastic. I'm really kind of like dark humored, but I also really want to be a good human and live the best possible life. Again, it's a perfect combination of all my favorite things. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen Thank my you. shitty life advice. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. I sent you something that I was like, this is like your shitty life advice. <laughs> I'm yeah. like obsessed with your shitty life advice. Uh, so you guys on Monday on Instagram, I'm giving free shitty life advice which it's the worst is great advice <laughs> if you do the exact opposite <laughs> how, how so what is your your spiritual education like what are you drawing from when you create the the memes uh-huh. um you know i don't create all the memes i i'm like a, i'm a meme account so i repost a lot of memes i just want to not take credit for all of them um i'm a curator and then i make memes too you know, I, I started that account after I quit the Yes School, and it really was to stay in touch with students. Like, they uh, they'd had all these years where I was like, you don't ever have to leave this community. And that kids would graduate high school and then be back the next day volunteering, and there was no difference, that they were just a part of that community. And I had a group that I just gave as a like, renegade, and... They, these kids said, like, we thought you were going to be around and then you're gone. And so I took time off of all social media for a while. And then I came back with this account and it was just to like share that positivity and humor and like that, you know, we had this culture of like giggling and fart jokes. And then let's talk about deep meaning. Mm. So. When I started the account or, you know, I started it with a friend who had been at the yes school too. And then, um, and, and that was the, the focus to share that with those people as well as like, just, just go, well, maybe other people like this stuff. And then, you know, she went back to teaching. I moved on with spiritual AF. And so my, my personal, uh, experience with spirituality is that I was never harmed by religion. And I feel really, really blessed. I know so many people who were religion, they grow up, grown up religious, and I didn't have that experience. I actually had it where I just, like, my my mom was Baptist and would take us to Baptist churches sometimes, but then she would always, like, take us there and we would sing and, like, people would be really nice to us. And then suddenly my mom was screaming at the, the preacher and then we were gone. And it was always like, oh, well, no more, no more of that for now. And then I would call... Uh, I figured out pretty young that if you go in the phone book to churches, they right is before summer starts that they will come and get you during the summer and they'll pick you up and give you snacks. And then like you make crafts and then they bring you back. And if you just tell them you're like super poor, they do that. So I just called them all. And then they would come to our house and like three or four station wagons would show up at our house every morning. And my brothers and I would split up and just go to different Bible churches or go like, I think one time we got went to, it wasn't all Bible, but those are mostly the ones that were in the area. We went to a Jewish one once and they didn't, my brother didn't understand the food. Uh, (laughs) But we, I just was like, oh, cool, you know? And so I feel really lucky in that way. So then when I went looking for a higher power, when I got sober, it was difficult because I was like, why would I trust 
anything that was supposed to be watching over me when all of this horrible stuff happened. And then I have this story. Well, and it's cool because you are the first person I'm going to be telling this story where I can show you proof. Yes. Exclusive people you heard yes. here. <laughs> the first to break the story. Oh, well, I've told this story, but not like this. So when I got sober and I was really mad and I was like, I, the care of some higher power, I was pissed. And I really was like, look me in the face and tell me that there was a God when X, Y, and Z, and I named all this horrific stuff. And the person there that was trying to help me find a higher power was like, kids experience God. And usually you have some experience that you can go back to and start from. And so for me, my grandma in her trailer, in front of her recliner, had this lacquered piece of driftwood and with a clock on it, and then a hologram picture of Jesus. And Jesus was up on the cross, and as you walk by, he would, I'm gonna have to do this, he'd go like this. Oh my God, he'd, he'd open his, his eyes. <laughs> yeah, he'd raise his head and open his eyes. And, um, and I would just stand there rocking back and forth and like just making him like jam out. And then my grandma would say, don't fuck with baby Jesus. He helps me with my word puzzles. <laughs> <laughs> and then my grandma told me that like about who this Jesus was. And I was five or younger at that point. And she said he loved everybody and everybody loved him and that he was God in human form. And that's what I knew. And then... My mom got this new boyfriend that she, uh, named Clutch Cargo that she met off the CB radio. His name was Clutch. Clutch Cargo, That's yeah. A cool name. Uh, yeah, it was a CB handle. But when and if you were in CB clubs back in Honky Tonkin, you went by your CB. So I don't know anybody's like real name from that era. <laughs> Keep going. So, Sorry. <laughs> uh, so, anyways, Clutch Cargo takes us to the Santa Cruz County Fair to see a country western show. And he gets us right up to the front and there's this bandstand and then the stairs that come down and there's a chain link fence up against the stairs. And so we were up against the chain link fence and I was up on Clutch's shoulders. And then Willie Nelson comes on the stage and he has the close crop beard and the wavy brown hair. And he's like, I love you. Everyone's like, we love you. And he's like, I love you. And then he starts singing and the dude has suffered. And I was like, this is the savior. And I was fully in the presence of the Lord. Like the experience for me was like, I was just like, ah, and I was absolutely present the entire time. Like I remember him singing. And then he comes down off of the stage and I'm just like, my hands are up in that chain link fence and I just scream, I love you. <laughs> I, like saying it to God. And he stopped and he touched my hand and he said, I love you too, baby. And it was just this like, even every time I tell a story, I've told the story a lot. I just like get teary eyed because I'm like, the experience inside me was just this absolute connection with what was sacred and what was good in me and what was good in everyone around us. And so when I went looking for a higher power, I, I went to that moment and the, the thought that I had, I, so I have that feeling. But the thought I had was that if I were smarter in that moment, I would have intellect intellectualized my way out of that beautiful experience. Oh, totally. I would have told myself, there's no way that this this person can be to represent the divine because they are a high on marijuana, bankrupt country Western singer. And so that I went to my first relationship with a higher power was to not think my way out of the beauty in the world. And when I get in, or even now, it's like, that's what, that that's that inexplicable connection and beauty and love. And so I call it the williness. 
Like, do I have the willingness? Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and so then I told the first time I told that story in public, I actually had the fear of like, maybe I made it all up. Because I told it and people were just like, whoa, that's an amazing story. And so then the next day I was walking in an antiques fair and um, I came across a flyer for that show. And turn around, look. It's there it is. There it is. And it was, it's absolutely the date. It's he was absolutely here. I was absolutely that age. And it just like, you know, like it it I've never seen another one of these flyers. And it just reinforced that I was like, no, that really happened. And so that cracking open thing. So when I go through my life and do I greet the world and do I crack open and become more loving, more tender? Do am I willing to have my heart broken? Am I willing to do, do I have the willingness? And then, you know, I've practiced meditation for since I was a teenager. I was in a Buddhist society of young punk rockers who like we would practice meditation and then go to punk shows and get in the pit with soft belly love stuff. And um, and I've just been a seeker, but I've never had like a calling towards one thing. And so that's spiritual AF is that I'm like it you can like that just honor that like I think laughing at babies is is a spiritual practice. I think poop jokes and giggling and and like roomy yeah yeah when i got sober so when i was a meth head i was super religious <laughs> super religious oh my God, i, I, love that I had a that I, could be the beginning of your book it, it, when i was the meth head i was super, I was religious. super <laughs> religious because life was so chaotic you know i was coming in these like crazy life into situations and it was this guy i don't want to say his name because i'm still kind of scared of him mm. and there was guns involved and like large quantities of drugs it sounds like religious right so like <laughs> every time something crazy happens you're just like thank you jesus because <laughs> uh, that's how i was raised christian and i i felt like ordained you know like everything i did i was totally protected and loved so i probably walked through a lot of these situations like way too casually because like i'm not gonna die here you know and i got sober and it was just like all gone like all that feeling all that feeling of safety and protection was totally gone and i was an atheist i should mention that i even taught a few sunday school classes high on meth um and we drew awesome you know we colored in some awesome uh coloring books about jesus and oh i think it was uh noah we were on noah at that point and um i was an atheist for like four years thank god the recovery community i was in like found a way to work with me you know even though they were really stressing you know you need a higher power greater than yourself because your decisions suck but there was a path for me but I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't do it for a while until I started noticing that all my friends who had a higher power and it could be, you know, some of it was conventional higher powers. Other of it was like the moon, you know, and stuff like that, the stars. And um, I noticed that they're all doing slightly better than me. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is because they were taking problems that were out of their control and letting them go. Right. Which is like, Today, still, when I pray, that's most nine times out of 10, that's what I'm praying for. And so I became willing, I became willy <laughs> to to give it a shot. And the first day I prayed, I texted a group of men who like we were like doing like a Monday or a morning check in every day. And I texted a group of guys. I'm like, today is the day I'm going to hand over control. And I like I was in a locker room and a climbing gym and no one else was around. So I just got down on my knees and I just said. 
I've been trying to fight the chaos forever. So like, just it's yours now, like bring it on. And my life fell apart that night. Like it's really <laughs> awful. <laughs> it probably would have been better if I had prayed like three months before. Cause I was just like, what the fuck just happened? And now I was like committed. I was like, take the wheel. And then my girlfriend dumps me and like I'm suicidal and like the whole thing comes in. And the first higher power I could get behind was the ocean, mm -hmm. right? Because you can see it, you can go visit it. It's cool. You, you know, you can make all kinds of like analogies about the waves. And, and that was like a huge step for me. You know, like even today, I still consider myself like an agnostic atheist who prays, mm -hmm. active prayer to something outside myself. And I, I see the benefit tremendously. And the first higher power I really got behind was a, a mentor of mine who just said, I believe in the gods. And I was like, whoa, you know, he's like a big Viking guy. I'm like, whoa, what are the gods? You know, are we gonna talk about Valhalla or something, you know, or like the Greek gods? And he's like, you know, when you eat super fresh produce, that's a God. You know, when you have amazing, healthy sex, that's a God. You know, when you work really hard towards a goal for six months and it comes uh -huh. true, that's a God. I'm spending time with the gods, <laughs> you know, like, just, like, just like that. And I was like, this is the best scam ever. Because if they're not real, I still did all this awesome stuff for myself. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time where I was like, this is a good use of my time. Because worst comes to worst, I did all this amazing stuff for myself. And best case scenario is I really communed with something bigger than myself. And those little moments, man, those spiritual moments are incredible. And you know, I don't deny them when they come. I just, I do the same thing that you were just talking about where I like get all intellectual and like, I found it's best for me not to worry about the objective truth, you know, and just to worry about results. And so like prayer works for me. And I'm not on this planet. There are people, you know, there are certain scientists that that's, sorry, that's your lot in life. You got to figure out objective truth. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm here to find a narrative that makes sense to me and meaning that makes sense to me and results that make sense to me. And they don't have to make sense to other people or be some universal truth that works for everyone, which, you know, if anyone's selling universal truth, I'm generally pretty skeptical. Me too. I always think that about belief that I'm like, does this belief make me kinder, more graceful, more compassionate, more generous? Am I a better person when I believe this? And I will pick up beliefs and just hold them for a while as a practice. And, and I feel like I, I, I get so much out of that where I don't have that big thing like, oh, then it was wrong if it stopped working. For me, it's just like fresh horses. Like I just got to keep this wagon going and like whatever belief if I, I and, and I'll try it on. And that that's the, it's an absolute, like it's not blind at all. I'm like, I am nicer. I am kinder. And my life goes better when I pray. This is the first year I really started looking at my beliefs. Like, is this belief serving me? Because I have a lot. I have a lot of beliefs that if I like look at them, they might be based off of events that happened to me that are really easy to come to that conclusion. Like it makes sense to come to that conclusion of why I hold that belief, but they just aren't serving me. Like I need to find a way to rewrite it. But then, you know, to the story, you know, where you think this story is going one way, but then have the way that it can turn into something else. Yeah. Your mind is like a sexy dominant 
top, you know, and it will fuck you whatever way it wants unless you like assert yourself and then you just fuck your mind. Like you just like, for me, I'm like that belief thing is like, I'm not going to go and beat it up. I'm going to fuck the shit out of it. You know, I'm going to like lay it down so that I'm in control of like what's happening. So like that, just getting into that space of like, I am going to direct this show about how my mind is going to fuck me. Yeah. You know, and that like, it's the truth is, is that undirected, my mind goes into wild, usually bad places because it desperately wants to protect me. Yeah. And it doesn't do a good job when I am not actively at the wheel or I don't, I mean, not even at the wheel unless I am actively fucking it. <laughs> Unguided, my brain can be such a dangerous place. It is a manufacturer of lies yeah. and craziness. And, you know, it's like there are times I'm all about, you know, not trying to not feel the feelings coming up, like feel the feelings unless you're really in a place where you, should, you know, you need to bury them we all know it's not healthy but there are times i think you know where you're just not in the place to deal with that situation but you know i generally believe like if you're feeling the feelings it's okay to feel them you don't have to act on your feelings you know you don't have to take direct action you mm -hmm. can actually go in the opposite direction of your feelings and you know your thoughts don't have to be believed god if i believed all my thoughts i'd be in a really dangerous place i was going to mention this roxanne because I often don't believe in myself. Mm -hmm. Often, often when you're talking about finding that belief, I have a photo of myself when I was like, I think five, five to nine, I believed in myself. And so I look at that little kid's eyes at the kid who believed. Like me, five to nine, I was the kid who believed. I drew designs for spaceships that I would make one day and I drew designs for submarines that I would build when I was a teenager and could use tools. And I put thought into like, this is how the hatch is gonna work. And I was the kid that believed and they're not objectively true. Like at uh, 30, I'm probably not gonna get recruited by NASA to design a spaceship, but I would rather be the kid who believes, be that kid than the kid who doesn't because mm -hmm. it's more pragmatic. What happened? to why I didn't believe. Yeah. It's such a complicated nest of, of certain things. You know, I was I was high and drunk from, from 12 to 22. I got sober at 22. And, but I also let a lot of people kind of break my spirit down. Like there, I was a really, this is how I feel, and it's not the most humble statement, but I was a really kind of unbridled, untamed force in nature. Like I believed in myself to where and if adult told me something, I was kind of like, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Like I have my own mind, my own logic, my own reason, and this is not the conclusion I came to. And it came off as arrogance a lot. And so there's a lot of adults intervening on it. And slowly but surely I learned to doubt myself. Mm. You know, and that other people knew better and that I was this arrogant know-it-all and now it's about rekindling that belief. Like I would rather be a believer, you know. I'm spending a lot of time with younger Sams mm -hmm. uh, and connecting with them and finding ways for them to look at who I am today and be very proud of who I am today. Because it's different than I imagined for myself. But I think ultimately, if they're like, "Man, you're the guy who you know ran across four lanes of traffic to go fish that lady out of her totaled car." or all the cool little events where I did step up, I think they would be very proud of me. But honestly, I think I let, I let people talk me out of it. 
I think it was intimidating for people or it was frustrating to work with me because I thought I knew better. And looking back on it now, I kind of feel like I would have learned with a much, like I would have preferred to learn with a much softer approach and for people to go, yeah, try that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> see where that gets you. And for me to make my own mistakes rather than be told I was wrong and be told. And so you know, I get a chance to raise a kid and, you know, it's, it's hard to not reintroduce the same traumas you had. And it's weird. You know, I don't talk about my mom's parenting, but she was very busy and there was only one person. And so there's nobody to like go to for an appeal. You know, mm -hmm. it was her way or the highway. And she was raised with a lot of fear, guilt, and shame. And some of that lingered on. So a lot of the ways I was taught was kind of like, how could you, you know, it was like very like just traditional. And my job now is to like lessen that and see if I can, Jackson, my son is a very different child than I was. You know, he's not, I, I don't know if it's thankfully or what, but he's not nearly as sensitive or introspective or he's just here in the now so he's a very different kid but how i want to live today is that go figure that out go make mistakes i'm total perfectionist i want to go make a ton of mistakes with this podcast with the graphics with the this the whole thing has been just duct taped together from the start anyway yeah and you know the people who listen to this aren't going to be like, "Whoa, your new graphics suck. <laughs> your new design sucks." <laughs> like they just wouldn't. So there is a level. Sorry, sorry, I didn't want to jump. No, I'm at that yeah. that balance of when you're looking for greatness. Because for me, I don't just want to write. The reason why it's taking me so long with this memoir is that I really want it to be amazing. Mm -hmm. Not just for me, but for other people. And so craft, I love craft. And so the craft of writing, the craft of creating, part of that comes with self-doubt or discernment. For me, I, I call it loving discernment. Can I take a step back in a loving way and go, is this really up to par? of my taste, of what I know to be good? Is this doing what I want it to be doing? Is it having the impact? And so that like belief without loving discernment can be not, you're not going to create greatness, like real great, you know, like where you're creating something so like really good. And so that balancing that discernment with the loving part of it for, for me, like working with students, like the best writers are the ones who are questioning themselves. Totally. It's not unbridled belief. And for me, because I, I am working on the same thing of like, I have hated myself for long enough and I have played humble for long enough. And as a woman, like we are taught to not take response. Like we're, we're taught that we were supposed to deflect all the time. Oh, it just happened to get this master's degree. Oh, I'm lucky. I'm and I know I've said I'm lucky a lot in this interview, but I think there's some balance that I'm looking for. And I, I think as a writing coach, there's this thing about like, how do we navigate that self-doubt, you know, and, and how do we just have that like absolute belief in the beauty that we are totally, and that we're expressing? Yeah. I mean, I have always been a perfectionist mm -hmm. personally. So, and that, that critic inside, this is just my own take on it. That critic inside has always taken credit for my best work. And I don't demonize any of those parts of me. I don't say like, 
yeah, even though the self-critic has been a total abuser of me as and perfectionism has robbed me of countless artworks, you know, because I never press publish. Yeah. It was trying to help, right? Like it was trying to make great work. Yeah. But to let it take credit for my work, I don't think is totally right either. I think you're right where there is a balance. But perfectionism has played such a role in my life to the way that um, I want to just press publish and make mistakes. And so I used to blog a lot. I've never corrected one typo. That's been an exercise in letting things go. Yeah, people write me. They're like, there's an O instead of I, and it makes of, you know, (laughs) (laughs) instead of if, and Mm -hmm. it ruins the sentence. I've never corrected one of them. I've come up with amazing rewrites. I've never rewritten one of them. Mm. You know, where it's like, oh, I know the exact way to end this piece. And it's just a reminder that like almost nothing I can do creatively is going to ruin my career. Mm. And here's the thing. The analogy for me is with drawing. And especially, I don't know how long you've been working on your memoir, but I spent a year not really writing my book, you know? So, and it's all perfectionism for the most part. It's like, I'll write out a paragraph and then rewrite the paragraph and then rewrite the paragraph. And it's like, I can draw pretty well, but it's like stiff and it's slow. And I'd rather learn how to draw messy now so I can draw fast and loose really well later. Mm -hmm. Like that's, I need to make a bunch of shit, especially when it comes to writing, you know, where you've probably put a lot more of the time in to where that is, that flow is coming a little bit more naturally. But for me, it's like, I know I can write 1,100 words that are great. And you're not allowed to say that, right? Yeah. You know, that's what my mom always said. She's like, I'm not allowed to say this, but I'm a great writer. Uh-huh. Like, I know I'm a great writer, but I, I want to be able to write a little bit looser, a little bit looser. Yeah. How long have you been working on the memoir? <laughs> uh, officially. No, let's, let's say officially. Officially. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm getting her to tell on herself here. Yeah. I'm still stumbling on that. I I mean, I was in writers groups working on pieces. So for I mean, I could say 18 years and I could also say I quit my job to finish the memoir in 2015, mm-hmm. 2013 actually. But then I have done a lot of other stuff. And yeah, so in like- yeah, and so there's yeah, so a long time I'm close. I, you sold it, right? No. I have an agent. You have an agent. Who, no, she's not really my agent. Um, I have, like, I I may, I wrote a list uh, when I first started looking at, like, what does it mean to be a real writer? And I wrote this agent down that I was like, that would be the one if I she could have. She represents one of your favorite people? She represents, yeah, one of my favorite people and is like every article I read was just like, she's the best and she's a nice person. And then I got a thing where she read 20 pages and then she uh, said kind of against her, like she was like, oh, I'm not taking new people, but send me your manuscript when it's done. Mm-hmm. And so right now I have this like click ticking clock of like, get it to her before she forgets. But that my thing was that it was like, you know, over a decade ago that I decided I was like, I'm going to get my manuscript to this woman. And then I did. And now I'm working to get the whole manuscript to her. That's kind of what I have there. And then I've, I have the decks of cards published and I have this 
brand of, you know, personal development stuff. And I'm working on a couple other nonfiction, like, oh, you're definitely, yeah, your hands are definitely full. Yeah, I'm doing that. I don't know how much I should get into the process of memory. I was just about to ask you. Okay. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I was actually just talking in my writer's group today that I teach about when you're dealing with like really hot topics, like the kind of abuse that I have. And I have like this childhood that is like, I can say one little thing about my childhood. And then that was like, oh, that's the book. And then I have like 15 of them. Like, mm-hmm. like same. Yeah. And so to not have the book just be a list of all this gnarly stuff that happened with some really great characters involved, but to have a real clarity about what am I actually de- like, what am I doing here? Why am I telling you this story? And I had so much personal work to do, not just trauma, like, cause I've done so much of the work. I mean, I've been in counseling since I was, you know, eight really, but like I went in when I was like a freshman in high school. So I had more work to do about how do I get outside of just what happened and get to what the story is? What am I actually looking at? And then once I got to that about what the through line is, what is this shift in this narrator that I am really focusing on? And for me, it was violence. The thing I have been obsessed with and the thing I have been the the driving force of all the change in my life was that I didn't want to be like my family. Mm-hmm. And then when I come down to it, it means violent. And there's violent is so in so many ways. There's the physical, external violence. There's internal violence. There's self-hatred. There's addiction. There's, you know, there's like habitual destructive behavior, which is violence. And then we are from, you know, we come from these lineages of violence. And then how do we not enact that? And I realized that that's what I was really looking at. And then I had to really dissect my own violence and then look at why did, you know, one of the major questions is why did my two brothers and I come from a long line of people who had massive trauma and and then enacted violence and then none of us really did. And so I really have had to do a ton of soul searching and work and then reworking a whole bunch of stuff about it. But then to look at this shift and like, I was a person des- like who was violent and then did enacted violence. And then I'm now very nonviolent. Uh, you were a person who enacted violence? Yeah. You were? Well, if we look at violence in the broad spectrum of violence, yes. Like I had times where I just was reading the beginning of my book where I, I like, there's this question about violence too, because it's hard to, ex- like, there's so much when you start unpacking your own story. But, you know, what I consider violence is about when you are physically, you know, you're physically violent, but I was also an alcoholic. Yeah. And I also did self-harm. And I also had so many behaviors that were destructive to myself. And I also had anger. And I would say things that that were just to hurt other people. And I was physically violent at times. And I come from a really violent culture. I lived on the streets. And, you know, I hung out with gangs. And I hung out, I hung out with violent people. And I used to thrive on that but i i mean my physical violence is much less than anybody i was hanging out with well i think emotional verbal right abuses are i've been everything but physically violent mm-hmm. i've been the worst boyfriend i've been the worst i like god that poor person was just in this sam torture chamber you know of kind of like emotional mind fuckery you know it wasn't like I wasn't like trying to do it, but that was just like the best I could do was shit, was yeah. total shit. 
and forgiving myself and making living amends by not doing that shit anymore has has been totally tough but yeah same same you know i've i've learned all of this the hard way (laughs) yeah well that's how like the trauma and violence works together and that's the incredibly like the part of me that would go to bed at night and not wish that i didn't wake up was when it was like the best i could do was shit and that honest, like when it was like, that was the best I could do, or like, it just came over me and I acted in a way that I like had no, I didn't even know I was going to do that. And that I could see why by the people who enacted it to me. And not just this like, oh, compassion, but to just go like, that's the way it works. Nobody gets, nobody grows up and thinks I'm going to grow up and be a, a shitty, violent person. And so yeah, I just, I feel like that part of us that is un, like unexamined and when we don't look at it, it's when it, it can come out of control. So, you know, the, the beginning of my book is like the, my, my first real memory, not of violence because I partly grew up in Alaska. So my dad kidnapped us when I was uh, very small because my mom was really crazy and I actually I don't want to just say crazy because that puts a bad term to people with mental illness. My mom was like a very violent, destructive person who had mental illness. <laughs> my my dad's in my dad's skill set, the best thing he could do would be to kidnap us and drive us to Alaska and try to live in the wilderness. And that was his plan that he was just taking my brothers and I, and we were going to live in the wilderness. And so we lived like a hundred miles from a paved road in the wilderness. And then it was weird growing up because I would be talking about things that were normal out in the wilderness where he'd be like, you trap and kill things. You like, you know, I like hit things on the head with a hammer when they were trapped and then I would eat them. And that was like, people would go, but then I would be like, oh, I'm horrified by like, people like beating each other up in the street here like that seems way worse to me or like when i was like you know five fire being taught how to fire a gun and people like oh i can't believe that and then i'd be like well is that like there's so this intersection between like there's a violence that is innate and like we harm things by living we don't oh yeah we harm and so then how do we unpack that about i am harming i'm harming other beings by being here Every single day, even if I am eating fully vegan, organic, you know, la 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 la. Like there's, we're doing that. But then, so for me, there in this book, I am really trying to look at that and look at how do you navigate that and come to a place of peace and health and and how how why do some people come out of trauma and enact violence on others and other people don't? Yeah. Which has been like, you know, all the work I did in schools and with drug addicts and gang members and blah, blah, blah. It's like when I looked at it, I was like, I have been obsessed with this since I was thinking. Well, I'm sure I can speak for many others listening uh, to this right now that we're pretty excited to to read what you put down. So one of the gifts of recovery is that you get to process that stuff with a pretty nice framework of healing from the shame of what uh, shit you were and the shit that happened to you. But I think I'm really interested in what you're doing today that works, especially trying to guide this towards the the end of the program. Mm Because I feel like we could seriously talk all day. Yeah. Very interesting story. (laughs) But the person who's in front of me today is pretty centered, really pretty confident and really emitting just like a really nice, wholesome 
wave. I don't know if that the a vibe, like your vibe is is here. And everybody, everybody has like they know a million things that would help their life. So if you're like, oh, what are the things that would work? They'd be like, oh, diet, exercise, meditation, this and that. But what are the things that you actually do in your life that are managed? Because you know you can make a list of 30 things and you're just not going to do them all. Mm-hmm. But what are the things that you actually come back to and do regularly that help you be the person who's in front of me right now? Well, thank you. <laughs> that feels really good to hear. Um. You know, there's a long list that I could say, and I'm just trying to think of the real thing. So the first thing that comes to my mind is about the belief that really helps me the bet the most. And that if I could quickly say it, it's that I am my best when I remind myself that of this belief that I am here as a human wired to be susceptible to resentment and fear and rage and all of these things that other beings on this planet are not susceptible to. And I am also then the only kind of being that is able to turn those things into love and forgiveness, and then therefore filter it out. And so when I get up in the mornings, and I just kind of align myself with like, it is not just like a nice thing for me to do. But if I just take it on as like, this is my job as a a human with an ego and a brain and a heart and all of these ways that I am both susceptible to these things that are destructive. And I'm also the only, then I'm the only kind of being that gets to turn them into love and forgiveness and therefore God. And so my prayers in the morning, I get up and I, I just think about that, like to go, well, if I do my job today, is is it a ritual? Do you kneel or Mm -hmm. you have a special place in the house or you do it in bed or, you know, I, I do, I like, I, I love fire and I think it's like one of my key element things. So at my best and most days I get up and I turn on my, my hot water and I light a, a candle and then I, I am, I say, you know, thank you. And I think, I think the, you know, my higher power for my sobriety first, because I feel like that was the beginning of my spiritual awakening. And then I get my coffee and then I bless my coffee and I just like, at, you know, I just kind of do a thing where I like just try to engage it with like all the goodness I possibly can and think about anything that I need. And I just like, I'll like hold it over the candle and be like, this is magic fucking potion that's going to make me have all this oh stuff, God, you know? And then, and then I like drink while I'm drinking my coffee. If I am in a place where I can, you know, if I can be with my own thoughts, then I will do that. I will think about, okay, to, you know, if I am taking on my divine work, my work on this world, then, you know, then bless my resentments and bless my, the places I struggle and bring that in there. If I'm not, then I read other, I read something or I watch something. And so that for me, meditation is both sitting with myself in silence but it also some you know because i am i have a really wild active mind looking at funny videos watching videos of like really great teachers reading books putting something else in my my psyche that is not just me and my problems mm-hmm. for me is a form of meditation and then just remaining conscious like i don't have to be happy every single day but when i'm unwilling to be happy that's a red flag And so that looking at like, how do I look, how do I see how I react to things? So I put on like happy music and then I do my breakfast with like, you know, 
like some booty shaking and happiness kind of stuff to just go, well, where am I at with like, am I loose with my, my access to joy or am I brittle? And if I'm brittle, maybe I need some more like work today and more care today to about how I'm going to engage with the world. Like just to go like, okay, where am I today? I am starting to fall in love with novelty and designed rituals. Like, mm-hmm. So I thank you for sharing those. Now, when it comes to what I'm most interested ritually is how do you write? I'm very perplexed at how I spent a year in my write. My book did not write itself while I was watching Netflix. <laughs> I'm not really sure how that happened. I just kind of expected it to happen. But how do you, how do you make t- what is your ritual behind writing with you are working full time coaching? You are working full time, you know, keeping up with the newsletters and the memes and all the things that you do, how do you make time for that debt of honor, that sacred Mm -hmm. thing that you're honoring this vision that wants to come to life? Yeah. Ellen Bass, the one I was talking about, taught people ask her how she, you know, how do you write all these poems? And then she just always is like, each poem is different. So, and it just like in, you know, every day is different. And so it's like some, some poems need you to walk six miles and come back and do it. And other, other poems need you to like get your ass in the chair and just sit there and grind it out. And so for me, with juggling so many projects now, especially, I actually think it lacks ritual. And that has been the best thing to just get stuff done and that to just get really messy and get really honest. And so for me lately in the last year or so or more when I was doing a master's degree and the cards and my memoir and business and all this stuff, it was just like, just figure out how to fit it in and just do it in tiny chunks. And what I noticed was that, so I post on Instagram, like I will write like whole things like about my experience and love and blah, 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 you know, and I do them in comments and I just write them with my thumbs. And then I would sit down to go write and I might, my, my regular fingers wouldn't go because they needed to be good. But my thumbs were just all, oh, I'm just doing an Instagram yeah. post. And, but I was like, I was right. I actually really love the writing I did. And it was really honest and creative and beautiful. And so just getting to a place where I'm like, if I can't find a time to sit down and write with my index finger or my other fingers, I have my phone and I can write just thoughts about my book. I can pick up something, uh, you know, pick up a spot and just write with my thumbs. Or sometimes just how do I get in? And it's just always like looking for a way in. And it, it usually is like not, it's not the like grand way that I think it's going to be. So sometimes I can't open my whole book manuscript because then I have to fix it all. If I open it, then that means I'm working on this book that feels too big. And then I, I know all the things that need to get fixed. So I won't open it. I will, I will go into an email and I will write a paragraph and then I'll email it to myself because emails aren't that important. You don't have to fix everything in an email. Or I will take a chunk from my manuscript and put it into an email and edit it there. Because then if I mess it up, it's just in an email. Mm -hmm. And so to just do that, like taking the heat off, especially as I'm getting more and more to the point of polishing, 
Because that's just like, that's where you're like, fine tooth, ah, it must be good. And I'm applying all this stuff I just paid like $45,000 to learn and, you know, all that pressure and to just take the pressure off. And to just bless my heart, I'm, I'm going to try to get back to it. And just whatever way I get back to it is an absolute win. And other times I am up at five o'clock in the morning and I set a timer and I get an hour and a half done before anything happens. And I light, I have a candle that like my witch friend made for me that <laughs> is like for my book specifically. And I'm completely capable of doing that. But when I create all of that stuff around it, it turns into something that then I have to be at my desk with the candle and it has to smell a certain way and the light has to be right and da da da. And then it's like I get something done once every six months. Awesome. I love that. Okay. So Roxanne, this is a question from an Instagrammer who had a question for you. Roxanne, when writing memoir slash creative nonfiction, what is the best way to handle stories that overlap with ours, but aren't ours? Sam's mama has a great quote about how people should have behaved better if they wanted to be written about warmly. And I get that. But what if the overlapping stories of our children or other loved ones? I come from a long genetic history of trauma and mental illness, and I have started writing, but not sharing. That experience of generational trauma and mental health struggles. But how can I share this compassionately without causing harm? It's a story I wish was out there in a loving way because it's a book I needed to read when I was in this thick. Would sharing and honestly be the best choice? That's a great question. And I think it's like, just to even ask the question means you're on the right path to just be looking at responsibility. Um, I see with myself and with other writers that we ask that question a little too early, though. And so my guideline is that I write like everyone else is dead. And so I just write and write and write. And then I edit like they're standing in the room. And then I will publish like they're sitting on my lap. And the process of that, just giving myself permission to write freely and openly and don't share it. And then share it with trusted writing people. Don't share it with your family. Then when you come back to the editing process, you're going to have way more clarity. You're going to be changed by the writing. So you're going to be able to be way more compassionate, way more knowing what the actual story is so that you can um, revise in a way that is to, to that story and not just the stuff that happened. And then by the time you're looking at going out and putting it out into the world, you probably have so much clarity that you know the answer about how to navigate other people's stories overlapping your own or how to navigate those difficult uh, stories of other people because you have done your own work and you have invested so much time and focus onto those stories that you're able to do it in a way that you would not have known how to do it if you hadn't done all that work. It's such an important question, too, Yeah, because I know I have stories that I probably can never write under my name. Mm -hmm. uh, Mandy Statmiller said that she's published several books on the Amazon like Kindle store just under a different name. Like, wow. Under a different pen name. So that's an option, too, if you get really stuck mm -hmm. or you're really worried. Also, if they're friends and not relatives, uh, my mom says just change their height and then nobody recognizes themselves. <laughs> Like change their name and change their height, and they immediately assume it's not them. Ah, their height. That their was, height. Because yeah. then they're like, well, that's uh -huh. clearly not, like you're getting so descriptive. Yeah. That's clearly not me. I mean, do you have any insight because of your mom? And, you know, I mean, there's like books. I don't know. You know, if I, 
as an adult had a say in it, this is a very hot topic, I wouldn't have wanted to be written about the way I was. Mm-hmm. You know, because like I'm forever Anne's son. Yeah. Like people will literally introduce me as Anne's son, like even when she's not there. Like mm-hmm. it's just humiliating, you know? Because I'm like I'm my own artist, you know, my my writing's different, my podcast is different, my look on the world is very different, much more uh you know, kind of rough around the edges and it's tough, but you know, it's, it's hard to balance because how many people have the books helped, you know? So it's, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, I think friends are totally fair game and I think relatives can be done, but it's, it's tough. Yeah. It's really tough. And there's no right answer. And you really, I think you said it best where you said you have to get it written first as with no censorship. And then you can figure out what you feel is appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you don't end up publishing it, you'll be thankful that you wrote it. Oh, yeah. Writing things can be very healthy. Yeah. One of the things I did and still do, but this massive practice, like it was like a big chunk of my writing time was I would take the the toughest parts of my story and then I would write it from the person who acted the worst and write it from their perspective Mm. because I had to get to a place where there was no true villains because there are so it's so easy for people to hear my story and go just monsters and I didn't want a story like that I read a lot of work in progress and one of the things that will turn people off the fastest is bitterness Bitterness is normal and all that, but when you're reading somebody's work, you want something digested. And so to deal with my bitterness, I would go in and write from their perspective to go, everybody does what they do for a really good reason, even when it's really awful stuff. And if I can get to the good reason, it doesn't mean it has to be a, a like that they're good people, but that there's some something driving it that is actually reasonable in whatever logic you put to it. And then from that experience, I was able to write in a way that held the humanity of everyone involved, even when they did things that are what the world would say is unforgivable. I don't know if you read Tina Alexis Allen's book. She was a guest on this Mm. program and she- What's the book called? God, I'm blanking on the book. (laughs) I'm so proud of myself for remembering. I'm so bad with names, but Tina Alexis Allen. She, yeah, she she was um, raped and molested by a family member, and went out into adulthood and totally just had the you know had the same experiences, just kind of over and over again, like attracting them or whatever. People often find themselves kind of in the same situations, it's like a bad cycle. Yeah, and she wrote her book is so tastefully done, like it's so wonderfully done to cover you know to talk about her crazy father and her really sick siblings. And, you know, like she said, she's like, I might not go to the family gatherings, but I did everyone uh, justice. And like, there is, it's so obviously that there are no bad guys in mm-hmm. her writing. I don't know if you're still collecting inspiration or if you're past that point, <laughs> but um, I, I would suggest that to the person who asked the question is to read that. Like it, it took a lot of balls and or oves or oves, yeah. <laughs> um, and um, 
and she she captured she did it like she did exactly what you're working on right now is to like figure out how somebody comes to that and how to like preserve their humanity yeah. while still telling the story that is yours yeah i think parents have a rougher time with it like looking at what's their responsibility as a parent and then what is their right as a person who is writing their own story and that comes with a lot more stuff to unpack and you're not writing about kids yeah yeah and, you know writing about their own children and things that will impact their children and i think parents have a lot more where they're just kind of like what you've said is like i'm not going to write about this certain thing just out of being a father and it's a difficult decision but i i respect it right yeah i mean i'm not gonna really write about fatherhood anymore or jacks anymore Mm-hmm. really at all because part of me you know it's like i love my mom we have a lot of stuff i've done a lot of therapy about it and they're you know just like any childhood we had our our stuff but part of me really does feel like my story was told for me mm. you know and because it went big you know which you never know but there's that chance that if you put it out there a lot of people do read it and so for whatever it's worth to anyone who is out there thinking about writing about their kids, that's just my take as a kid who was written about. And I don't, you know, I don't think there is a right or wrong necessarily answer, but if I could go back and if it wouldn't affect my mom's career in any way, I would love to have been written about less, if not at all. Hmm. That's a hard decision for people to make. Yeah. It's a tough one. That's like one where you have to, you know, do gut checks, do God checks. Yeah. Figure out what what you're supposed to do with that one. Yeah. I think with my personal life, I tell, I just consistently tell people like, you you know, you you can't hang out with a memoirist and not, (laughs) not expect me to write about it in some way. And so just know it that I, I mean, on my, I, I write a lot of personal stuff on Instagram but I take people's names out of it. A lot of times you, it's like, I will say a friend or a thing, you know, I was here and I, or I'll take people out. But I kind of also am like, if you're hanging with me and you get all these benefits of all this, like, you know, brightness and creativity and inquiry into the world and curiosity into you, it comes with that I'm probably going to write about you. And so adults in my life, I'm like, you should know that just up front at some point. It's fair game. Yeah. And it's part it's part of who I am. How are you are the people you're writing about, your mother and father, are they still alive? Yeah. Yeah. So you are actively working through this. Well, my dad is alive and in my life, and my mom I haven't spoken to in decades. And so um so with my dad, I navigate that and about how do I honor him as well as still tell my story. Um and, and my stepmom, who's been in my life since I was three, uh, I I do look. I mean, I wrote it the way I wrote it in the first drafts, and then I uh, I know that they're going to have issue with some things, but I have thought about and looked at how I'm portraying them, and and in my my view, I am being very generous and looking at how how do I honor them them as whole humans who made big mistakes with my mom i just try to be exceptionally compassionate about her humanity and then also i'm not going to hide that she crossed a line to where she is so evil 
And she is a representation of what happens when you have gone too far and you can't come back. And so I don't, I'm not bitter. I mean, I still have pain and I still sometimes I'm like, it sucks that I, I had that. And I look back on that kid and my brothers. And I, when I think about what my brothers went through, I have anger. Um, but I paint her as much as I can in a, in a human way, but also I'm not going to hide that she, she really did. I mean, she came to a point where she is an evil human being. Yeah. And who did evil things. And, who who yeah. did so many evil things that she, I, I mean, I think of that filter idea and that she got so clogged up that there's no coming back, that she is just a magnet for that evil in the world. It's nice to hear you say that because a lot of people will take this spiritual approach that like, oh, you need to find forgiveness and mm-hmm. need to like, and I don't think that's a requirement at all. Mm-hmm. Like, um, there's also like this vibe, like if somebody ask forgiveness you need to give it to them it's like no way no way like they can find their own healing without your forgiveness like you do not need to be you do not need to absolve them in any way shape or form no and forgiveness i mean i know you know that it's not about absolving them but i don't need just because i forgive somebody doesn't mean that they get to have ever have access to me again or that they get to even know that i forgave them my mother i don't I've never, I've never contacted her. She doesn't need to know whether I've forgiven her or not. And that my forgiveness is for me and for the people I'm going to, if I'm going to interact with from a place like of whether I have healed or not. And so I do it out of generosity and, and responsibility for the people that I do love in my life. And that I can forgive somebody and still be upset. Yeah. That I can, I can, for, you know, I forgive the human. And usually that, what that means for me is that I think about who my mom was at eight and, and that she never wanted to be who she became. And I can forgive that human and I don't ever have to forgive what they did. The action. Beautifully said. <laughs> so, This is the way I like to end the program. If I could hand you a phone right now and on the other end would be Roxanne at her most vulnerable, at her weakest, at the crossroads where you could have taken another path, what is the message you would like her to hear on the other end of that phone that you think would just be exactly what she needed to help get you to who you are today? You know, I... I actually was just talking to somebody that I actually, I don't, I want to do a disclaimer that I'm not like off my rocker, but that there is this, it feels like a thin veil between myself now and myself back then. I feel, especially as I've gotten more and more stable that I'm like, I think, I think she's heard all the work I've been doing. I think she knew. Like I have done so much loving kindness meditations where I have showered that kid with love and I've been doing it, you know, for 30 years almost that I that I'm like there's no way that she didn't feel that so I that when you're asking me that I'm like well I think that that happened there's no way that she could do what she did and so I think the number one thing that I would say is just like thank you so much and I would just thank her already because she was the one who did went into the abyss and you know she took all those risks without any certainty 
and having any knowledge. And then I think if I was giving advice, it would be ask for help. Just if ever there's a problem, if ever there's, just find somebody to ask for help. Thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Thank you, Sam. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution. So our patrons are our financial backbone of this product. That's how we manage to do this ad-free. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash howtohuman. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash howtohuman. This is the How to Human podcast, a production of hellohumans.co. Until next time, have a great day.